I played with Hakeem Olajuwon. I played with Julius Irving. I played with Bill Walton. I played with Isaiah Thomas. All Hall of Fame guys. The common denominator that they had was they were all teammates. We did things together as a team. They weren't over here or up there. We were all in the same boat. We went to the movies together. We went to dinner together. They practiced. They practiced. They worked just like everybody else. And the truly great players are on the court. The ones who are trying to be great tend to take shortcuts, take time off. Welcome to the Lead Like Jesus podcast. It's exciting to have you back for part two of our interview with Coach Lionel Hollins. I told you last time about his distinguished playing career, had a 10-year playing career in the NBA and has coached in the NBA as an assistant coach and a head coach for the rest of his tenure for like 30 years. So there's a lifetime of playing and coaching. I believe that coaching is one of the greatest environments for leadership lessons. When I think about following great leaders, some of the people I study the most and admire the most and really just enjoy watching and observing is coaches. Today, we're going to talk about some leadership lessons that have really uh, come out of coaches' experience of playing for other coaches. What did he learn from other coaches? We're going to talk about some of those leadership lessons of playing with other great players and watching how they conducted themselves, and then some leadership lessons from being a coach himself. And I believe these lessons are going to be very practical into your life, into your workspace, into your ministry. And so, Coach, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Coach, as we think about leadership lessons, as you were a player, both in college and MBA, what were some of those key lessons that you began to learn from watching other great players that you began to build into your own life? Well, when I was younger, uh, coaches were totally in charge and coaches said to do and you did. I still believe that players prepare and perform and coaches teach and demand. When I look back on the coaches in my life, every last one of them were demanding or had expectations. Demand seems like something bad, but they had expectations, not necessarily rules, but they had expectations of standards of how we were going to practice, whether we had our shirts tucked in how we put our socks on and everything. Uh, you don't see that very much anymore. I think the last coach that used to do that was John Wooden. I've learned a lot through playing for coaches and what they did. Uh, my high school coach came from a different high school, and I would probably would have stuck with playing baseball if he hadn't changed schools and came to our school. I wasn't valued uh, by the previous coach style and size because I was smaller at that point. But uh, the new coach came in and he embraced me. But he taught me about consequences. He taught me about overcoming whatever those consequences were. Because when he came, I was playing football. Our last game was on uh, Veterans Day. It was a Thursday or Friday. I forget which day it was. Tryouts for the basketball team started on Saturday. Well, my grandmother says, you don't try out for basketball until you go to school on Monday. And so I missed the tryout. And on Monday, there was a cut. And my name was not on the list. Fortunately, the athletic director and my football coach went to the basketball coach and said, hey, he's a, he wouldn't have missed if he couldn't. And I t explained to him when I did talk to him what happened. He said, well, here's the deal. You can come and try out, but you're going to be behind the eight ball. 
You're going to be on the last man on a total pole. You're going to have to run every day after practice for at least a week. If I think that it should be longer, it'll be longer. And so I was not with the starting unit. I was not with the second unit. I was not with the third unit. I had to overcome all that. And I had to also run line drills. After we ran line drills, I had to run more line drills. And then I had to run stairs. And I think what he was doing was trying to see how much I wanted it and how much I was willing to do to get it. I learned a valuable lesson from that because, you know, we can give players all we want to give them. But if they don't earn anything, they're not going to appreciate it. And then you find out who they are as people when you do have expectations and demands and you you put a little stress on them to see how far they're willing to go. I had a kid who lived with my youngest son and he tried off the team and he had a ponytail and he came home and he says, I'm going to quit the team. I said, why? He says, the coach wants me to cut my ponytail. I said, what's more important, your ponytail or playing basketball? And he says, well, I've had this. I said, you've had it since fifth grade. So what? You can always grow it again. That stuck with him. Today, he has his own youth ministry. And he talks about that moment of when he got clarity on what was important and what should be priority. And I think coach and my high school coach taught me that as well. You know, one of the things I hear in that is great leaders, before they become a great leader, they have to be a great follower. They have to learn how to submit to someone else's leadership, whether they agree or not, and just follow them and prove that they're willing to do that. What would you say about that? I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I went through my high school and college career and also all of the sports that I played in. I did what I was supposed to do. And then I started working as a coach. And that's when I learned that all coaches aren't created equal. And... uh, All the coaches I had as a player, they were valuable and they helped me. And then I started working under a coach who liked being titled coach, but he didn't like to work at coach. He did a lot of bad things that I learned what not to do Mm. more than I learned what to do. And I went through some other coaches who have titles of being really good coaches, but internally I saw flaws that were the reason why their teams couldn't be better. And so, again, I started learning what what not to do. And I think that as a coach, especially as an assistant coach, but also as a player, you do have to submit to leadership. You have to be willing to humble yourself and sacrifice what you're all about and what you have to bring so that everybody else can raise up as well. And it it happens as a coach. I cannot be an assistant coach, a, a good assistant coach, if I'm not submitting to the authority of the head coach, even if I disagree with what he brings to the party or wants to bring to the party. It's still his job and I'm still his subordinate and I'm not his boss. He's my boss. And I think that a lot of coaches want to step on the head coach's toes. A lot of players certainly do because they feel like it's all about them. You know, we had this conversation once ourselves and it's about if you're humble and you're confident, you know that you have things over this guy that you could probably utilize better, but you practice being the best number two that you can be. Mm. And I think that's important when you're learning to serve and learning leadership, because even as a coach, as a head coach, there's times when my leadership had to back down and be humble. I've apologized to players. I've uh, let them know that it's not about me and him. 
It's about our team. It's about us. And I've also let them know that you and I getting in a conversation and me winning or you winning doesn't change the fact that we still have to do for the team. You know, that's what I like to call the discipline of place. You have to learn where your place is on the team or even as a coach. You know, the thing that is different about leading like Jesus is you're still a servant leader. You might be the person that's in authority, but you don't abuse your authority. You use your authority in the way that you serve others. When you think about great coaches that you've worked with, played for, what would you say are the common denominators of the greatest coaches and who would be some of those coaches and kind of what you saw in their life and learned from them? Well, I think that the number one thing is the ability to communicate. That stands out to me, the ability to develop relationships and the ability to be flexible. The greatest coach that I ever played for was Jack Ramsey. If we never won a championship, he still would have been the greatest coach that I played for. But he had the ability to sell you. He cared about you and he wanted the best for you. Another coach that I worked for, I didn't play for, I wished I could have, was Cotton Fitzsimmons. And he was my first pro as the head coach. And Cotton was this great motivator. He could walk in this room and make you and I jump through that window and think we wouldn't get hurt. He was that good at motivating, but it was through communication. From him and Jack, I learned relationships were important. Cotton would throw a bowling party and have all the families come over. He would have things at his house and everybody would be invited. And everybody came because they loved being around him. They loved hearing his stories. Jack would do similar things. We didn't do them on that level. We'd be invited to Jack's house. He'd take you to dinner on the road. And he would come up in the, in the airport and see you where you're eating breakfast and sit down and talk to you, ask you if everything is okay. You know, you don't look yourself. You know, he, he recognized and, and viewed everybody through an individual lens. And when we were on the court, it was about team. But he cared about you as an individual and as a person. And, and those two guys stand out for me in that regard. Obviously, my junior college coach stands out because he was very domineering. He was harsh. We went to his uh, uh, reunion and everybody to a man says, coach, you would have been fired for some of the things that you did to us now. And he'd laugh about it. But he took me under his wing, a young black guy from the ghetto of Las Vegas and said, you belong. And I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that you belong. And I'd go over his house. I'd eat. I had my tonsils out. I wake up. He's sitting there. He's the first person that's there. You know, he didn't send an assistant coach. He didn't come two days later. He was sitting there when I woke up that morning. He was right there. He came to the dorm. He walked from his house over to my dorm and gave me broth, you know, and helped nurture me back. I didn't go home. I wasn't with my family. I was right there, and he made sure that I was okay. I got my teeth knocked out. He sent me to a dentist. He made the dentist pay for it. You know, he did all of these things because— he cared about me, the person, and I still, he'll call me. I call him. We go visit him, take all the family back there. Last year, I did a commencement for the university that it's now a four-year school, and I did a commencement. And I honored him because he and his wife were that good to me as an individual. Forget basketball. He was the same to me as he was everybody right, else on the right. basketball court, but as, a, as an individual. And so I learned those lessons and how to, all these guys always talked and it was hard for me when I became a coach and players didn't want to talk to me. 
I had to talk to them. But I learned that it was about gaining their trust. And once I did, they would come to my office and they would give me input. All these guys that I talk about, my college coach, Ned Wook at Arizona State, I mean, the guy, I could go to his office and he'd stop what he was doing and sit on the couch and we'd have a conversation. And he would glean when I had a problem or I just wanted to talk. (laughs) Well, you know, we're talking about the common characteristics of great coaches, what makes them great leaders. In just a moment, I want to ask you about the same question about players. What are those common denominators of great players? And then third, what I really want to do is you took a, uh, a franchise that had had a losing culture and transformed it into a winning culture with the Memphis Grizzlies. And as we, you know, go forward in this podcast, I really want to talk about the importance of, of how you did that, of transforming a culture. But the next question, let's focus on players for a moment. But before we do, I just want to kind of recap coaches. You said great coaches are great communicators. They're always communicating with you. They prioritize relationships, you know, that they're gaining trust. They're, they're caring about you as a person. Number three, they're flexible. And then number four, there's the element of motivation. So those are the kind of the the common characteristics of a great coach. What would you say are those common characteristics of a great player that is learning under those coaches? We talked about it earlier. It's about embracing your role. I think that too often players expect stardom instead of expecting normalcy and letting stardom rise Pat Riley said at one time, you're not the player that you want to be until you're the player that you want to be. You're not the team that you want to be until you're the team you want to be. And what that means is we can pump you up all you want to be whatever you want to be. But until you are actually that person or that team, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's what you find with great players. I'm going to use Tim Duncan as an example. Tim Duncan arguably was better than David Robinson when he came in the league, when they first played together. But he came in as a teammate, and he let David Robinson lead. He helped him on the court as a player, but he let David Robinson lead. He stayed in his place until David Robinson retired, and then he took over. But he was a teammate. I played with Hakeem Olajuwon. I played with Julius Irving. I played with Bill Walton. I played with Isaiah Thomas, all Hall of Fame guys. The common denominator that they had was they were all teammates. We did things together as a team. They weren't over here or up there. We were all in the same boat. We went to the movies together. We went to dinner together. They practiced. They practiced. They worked just like everybody else. And the truly great players are on the court. The ones who are trying to be great tend to take shortcuts, take time off. I I really respect LeBron James for playing 82 games this year. He didn't have to. Absolutely. At 33 years old, he didn't really, as he said, I paid my dues and I played in every arena. But he took it personally when they criticized all the players for not playing when they should play. And he played 82 games this year. And I think the drive, the intensity, the the mindset that I have to prove who I am every day I step on the court. Michael Jordan, right now, if you and I played him, he wouldn't want us to score. (laughs) Yeah. If he played against his mother or grandmother, he would not want you to score because he wants to prove to you that he is the greatest and that you didn't even get a basket against him. He could let you have one basket, but he's not going to let you have one. Those two examples are amazing. So LeBron plays 82 games 
and he doesn't have to. And so there's something about greatness that has nothing to do with money, even though they they've earned all this money. The same thing with Michael Jordan. What is it that is that differentiator in people that is that greatness drive, regardless of how successful they are, they're still driven, regardless how much money they have, they're still driven. We talk about serving leadership. These guys have it. They are responsible to their families. They're responsible to the organization. They're responsible to the coach. They're responsible to their teammates, but they're responsible to the fans. I got two stories. I saw Michael Jordan. I was coaching and he was in a locker room and he was hurt. And Michael Jordan is in Vancouver, British Columbia. We won 15 games and 14 games in two years. So Michael's team could have played without him. Michael came out there and not only did he play, but he destroyed us and won the game. I'm with Julius Irving and we're playing in Atlanta and we had Atlanta's number. They played as tough, but we always beat them. Julius Irving had had a toenail that had been removed and he was getting treatment and he was going to get a shot right in a toad so he could play. And I was like, Doc, you don't have to play tonight. I said, we got this. I said, we own Atlanta. He said, you don't understand. He said, there's 20,000 people came out there to see the doctor operate. I got to go put on a show for them. Seeing the big picture and not seeing it just from their own lenses is what makes them great. I have to go out there and put on a show because they paid money to come see me play. Michael believed that he had to go out there and prove to everybody he could play against the worst player in the NBA that was on the end of the bench and never played. He was going to compete against him because it was his responsibility to show the fans that why he was great. There's nobody on his level. I love it. A couple of different times when my kids were growing up in those teenage years, they would say something like, well, dad, you're the boss. You can do whatever you want to do. I would always say, actually, it's just the opposite. The fact that you're the boss doesn't give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do or to cut corners or to take shortcuts. It actually makes you more responsible, which you were just talking about is in these characteristics of a great player. They embrace their role, their teammates first, their stars second. The stardom kind of arises out of their willingness to embrace their role. And then they're responsible. Is there anything else you would add to those qualities that typically emerge out of you know a great player? Great players have the ability to take their teammates and raise them up to a level that they didn't even know they could go. And you're seeing it right now in the playoffs with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Without LeBron, that team wouldn't even be in the playoffs. But he's raised their level of play and make them believe because of his greatness. There's great players that put up great numbers but they don't raise and elevate the level of play of their teammates. It's just about them. Mm-hmm. The truly great players raise the level up around, and no matter where they go, they win. You know, in a lead like Jesus way, Jesus could have had a plan where he just came and he was the star of the show and he did everything himself, but he chose to select 12 ordinary people. Yes. In that way, he created his own team. Then what he ultimately did is he empowered them, he equipped them to go lead their own teams. And now we're here today, ultimately, because not of his just, of course, yes, as the savior of the world, that particular part. But if you look at it from a leadership standpoint, we're here today because he empowered. He did exactly what you said. He raised others up to go be the leaders they could be. Yeah. And I have a saying that 
when you're the leader and there are people under you, they all have dreams and aspirations and goals. And your job is to respect that and help them achieve that within whatever organization or team setting that you have. It, it just can't be about them. But you have to understand that this is something that they want and they desire. And you have to show them how they can get it within the framework of what everybody's doing. My grandmother used to say this here. It's in the Bible about doing what you do where you are at that moment. And my sisters used to hate washing dishes and cleaning. We go, oh, we got all these people in the house and I have to clean up for them and I have to clean up for them. When I get my own place, I'm going to clean up. And my grandmother would say, no, you won't. If you won't clean now, you won't clean when you're on your own. Because who you are now is who you're going to be when you get away from me. Yeah, that's exactly what people say about giving as well. Well, one day when I make a lot of money, I'll give. If you don't give when you don't make a lot of money, you won't give when you do make a lot exactly. of money. So now um, when you took over as coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, unfortunately, there had been a history there of losing seasons. And, and therefore, you you know accidentally fall into a losing culture or a losing mentality. When you came in as the head coach, what were some of the things that you began to do to intentionally change that culture and to create a winning culture? Because once you took over, you began to build that. You eventually took them to the Western Conference Finals. And I believe the franchise went to seven straight playoffs as a result of that foundation you built. You know, it's interesting. It happened so fast from me not being here to me being here, being assistant in Milwaukee and getting a call from uh, Michael Heisley, who was the owner at the time. And accepting the job. And when I came in, the first thing I did was I had a meeting with the whole staff, the coaches that I bought on, the coaches that remained, and also the training staff, the strength and conditioning staff, the equipment guys, everybody. And I had my expectations of how things were going to be. Some people fought it because they've, well, we've always done it this way. And, you know, coach has never been over here in this. I was like, well, we're all under the same umbrella. And so we're all in this together as a group, and we have to all have the same message. I can't have you over here telling them, I don't like the way coach is doing this or he's doing this wrong. You, That's not going to work. It's not just us in the, in the coaching office, but it's everybody. And I had a meeting with individual groups. And then when I walked in the locker room, the first thing I did, pointed out to Rudy Gay. I said, Rudy Gay, you're averaging 20 points a game. O.J. Mayo, you're averaging 20 points a game. That's 40 points. That's great, but it's not winning. I said, you guys have to quit competing against each other and start playing with everybody else as well. Second thing was, this is your team. Whatever you're trying to achieve in sport, I've already achieved. So it's not about me. It's about you. You have to take ownership of this team. If you're finishing last in the sprints after practice, you're hurting your team. You're not hurting me. You're hurting your mm. team. If you finish first, you're going to elevate everybody else to have to finish near you right. or at least put in the effort to get up there near you. If you have the ability to finish first, why would you finish second? Right. Why would you finish last? It's about your mindset and the willingness to go in and work. And it was about work ethic. It's about togetherness. It's about them. And I said, we can do all of these things, but the reality is if we don't have enough talent, we're still going to lose. But you will know that you've done all you can do to go out there and compete. 
And that's what success is. Taking your God-given ability, maximizing it. Everybody has different levels of ability. But if everybody maxes their ability, then we're going to be a success whether we win or lose. So I was taking the onus off of trying to worry about winning and worry about being the best that they could be with the gifts they had. So that's kind of the, the beginning team meeting. I'm, I'm your new head coach. We're going to set the stage. We're going to build a new culture. Maybe three months in or four months in, where, where were you along the, the way that you begin to think, okay, we've got something that's working here. And, and what were the, the things that begin to give you confidence and that was evidence that this mindset was beginning to change, the work ethic was beginning to change? Well, that started almost immediately, the mindset, because they were young and they wanted to have success. They didn't want to be floundering in, in last place. We didn't have enough talent to do it. So my goal was to build a foundation of work ethic, of playing hard and playing together be representative of the fan base. And I said, when we go out there and there's 6,000 fans, I would tell them, I said, you have to excite these 6,000 fans. You can't get upset if they're not cheering unless you make them cheer. You make them cheer with your work ethic, your toughness, and your will to compete and not quit. And so that started developing right away. And I think it caught hold, and we finished the season, you know, we lost games in a row and all that, but the foundation was being laid. And the other thing I recognized that we had some pretty good players that nobody knew about. Rudy Gay was going to be good. Mike Conley was going to be O.J. Mayo, Mark Gasol. And so with those guys, and we also had the periphery of negative players that had to go. Mm. They were never going to buy in. And so at the end of the season, or even as we were coming out, I go to Chris Wallace and Chris, we have to get rid of these four guys. In that, let's draw a little bit of a parallel. Again, if we look at Jesus with his 12, he had this kind of core three. He had Peter, James, and John that were the ones that he spent the most time with. It's it's almost like, you know, in NBA circles, you got to almost always have at least three some days now. You know, with Golden State, you got four stars. But, you know, he had those three that he poured into in a primary way. And then they would kind of pour into the other nine. And those other nine would really look to the three for direction. And the three looked to the coach. What did you do to invest into the primary strategic leaders on the team so that they would also set the culture? Well, primarily try to empower them. Mike Conley, what play do you want to run? You're the point guard. You run it. Let me know what you're going to run. Mark, you can take a shot whenever you want to take a shot. You have the ability to make shots. You don't have to wait for a play to run. If you feel open, if you feel like making a play, a drive or whatever. And, and I think that all of that was good for them because what I was trying to create were guys who could make decisions, good decisions, and play with each other in a game. So practices were, were very demanding. We worked hard. They weren't always long, but we did work. And I would tell them, this hard work will make a game seem easy. Mm. And then the next year, after we got rid of certain guys and we bought other guys in and we bought Zach Randolph in, Zach kind of gave them the anchor. And I empowered Zach because I told Zach, you've been 20 and 10 your whole career. You've never made an all-star team and you've very rarely been on a good team. I said, why? I said, because you don't win. I said, you want to make all-star games? You want to make all-pro? Be a part of winning. That's what people 
recognize, and that's where your legacy is. And I talk a lot to him about legacy. Right. Legacy with his money, legacy with the, with his uh, career on the court as well, legacy with his family and his kids. Because the other kids were young and they didn't have any family. But I did talk about legacy with them, about what kind of legacy are you going to leave? Because that's what is ultimate. When they talk about the all-time greats, it's legacy. <laughs> you know, right. it, it's what they did to enhance the game. You right. know, and not what they did that enhanced them. Wow. Enhance the game, not themselves. Yeah. One of the things that you were saying just a moment ago is that with those core three, you empowered them. One of the things that typically happens is when you empower people, they've got to take ownership. And when they take ownership, then no longer can they just blame you as the coach or someone else and kind of play the victim that because you empowered them, they've got to take ownership of that. How did you see those dynamics play out where when they did take ownership, then it became our team and we're not pointing fingers anymore? Well, I think it took a little while because they still had the uh, ability to stop playing when they got behind. They didn't know that being behind 10 in the first quarter didn't mean a loss. You know, so it was stop and go, stop and go. Some days they would do it. Some days they would back up. And, you know, I had many conversations with Mark Casal about, you know, he'd come over and so on. So like, go tell him, Mike, Mark and Rudy and Zach are screaming at me. Well, go tell them to stop screaming at you. What do you want me to do? Tell them, leave Mike alone. You know, I'm like, that's not going to work because you're out there with them. And so we, we went back and forth on that. And you could see it turning, and eventually they respected Mike as the point guard and the leader. They respected Zach for what he bought. They respected Mark because they were up here giving the effort and energy every day. Not everybody was doing that, and so they had to raise their level up. Not that they were vocal and got on people all the time, but the fact that they were doing it by example allowed me to challenge these other players to raise their level. Now, If you're outside of the Memphis area, you may not know all the dynamics of the Grizzlies, but you had Mark Casal and and Zach Randolph and Mike Conley. But you had this other player that was kind of almost an enigma, became a fan favorite, and, and he was a little bit eccentric in some ways. And his name is Tony Allen. So how did you take a player like Tony Allen and leverage the uniqueness of who he is to really also help build that culture? Arguably... Tony was the best competitor on our team, arguably. I mean, there's other guys who were very competitive, and, but Tony consistently did not like losing. Tony also was very, very high basketball IQ. Tony also had to work ethic to get in the, in the film room and watch film on the players he was competing against. And with that, I could come in the locker room at halftime, and Tony would already have the film going and tell him guys what they're doing wrong And so what he added was that vocal leadership, not just example, but vocal leadership. He was uh, undisciplined in following schemes. He gambled. But Tony made a difference in the game, both with his teammates and and his vocal presence and also with his physical presence because he understood. And he would tell Mike, you don't have to do that. You're wasting too much energy. Just Go this way. He'll come to you. And so Mike starts watching film and understanding. And then other guys are starting to watch film. And so they're starting to get that it's important, not just on the court what you do, but what you do in the film room as well. Tony could turn a game around in a heartbeat. 
he would gamble and make a steal. He'd get frustrated if he gambled and didn't make a steal and somebody didn't help him. And sometimes I'd have to comment. I'm like, Tony, if you keep gambling all the time, nobody knows where you are, or what you're doing. But most of the times he did it. And I let it I, ha- I had to let him be him because he wouldn't have been effective any other way in his being effective, he affected the rest of the team and allowed them to raise their level. And all of a sudden, we became a defense. That's not what I set out to do. Mm-hmm. That first year when Zach got there, we were a high-scoring team. But when Tony came to the team, the grit and grind really started from the perspective that we got down and everybody, it was physical, it was aggressive. Tony would bump and grind with anybody, and he intimidated people with his verbiage, and he inspired his own teammates. So... Tony bought a different level of play, energy, and it was every day. He'd come to practice and guys would be down and Tony starts talking. And then Tony steals the ball from Zach and he talks to Zach and it gets Zach charged up. You know, he'd do something to Mark and he'd get Mark charged up. And then he'd do it with OJ and Rudy and Mike and all the guards. And next thing you know, they're competing on a level that's game-like. What I love about that, and this is uh, a great leadership principle, that people typically are energy givers or energy drainers. So they're going to either come into a room and come into a team or come into a leadership situation, and they're going to elevate the energy of everybody in the room. And obviously, that's what you just described with Tony. Or there's others that they come in and they actually drain the energy out of the room. I call those guys flatliners. They walk in. And if things are going good for them off the court, on the court, they'll be rah, rah, rah. When things aren't going good for them, they're not. I could take Tony out of the game and be mad at him for gambling too much or doing something. Tony will go and sit down. He might throw a towel at my feet to let me know he's upset. Or he might walk to the end of the court and come off so he doesn't have to shake my hand. But once play started again, Tony was up waving his towel and cheering people on and telling them what to do because it wasn't about Tony. It was about the team and it was about the game. If you can get a high volume of those players on your team, you're going to have success. They're going to be tough. They're going to be competitive. They're going to care about winning and losing. And they're going to come out and bring what they have every day. No matter what's going on in Tony's life off the court, He's bringing what he has. When when we start practice or start a game, Tony's bringing it. So to every leader out there, let me repeat that. It wasn't about Tony. It was about the team and it was about the game. And so when you think about your own leadership, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's always about others. And what a servant leader does is a servant leader is first and foremost leading for Jesus himself Second, leading for others, a servant leader is leading for the glory of God and the good of people. Coach, we are so thankful for you sharing those leadership lessons, and we look forward to future podcasts to learn more from you in that way. But if you want to learn more about Lead Like Jesus and how to be a servant leader, please go to our website, leadlikejesus.com. And there are all kinds of great resources there available for you and available for your team so that we can learn how to lead with the heart that Jesus has. You know, we can learn how to lead with his head, his mind, the way that he thinks. We can learn how to lead with his hands and his feet. 
And when we will lead others and be a servant leader and we'll lead their heart and we'll lead their head, then we'll inspire them to do greater things than ever before, empower them, and your greatest joy will not be what you accomplish as a leader, but what others accomplish in their leadership. And that's when you lead like Jesus. So go to leadlikejesus.com to learn more. And we look forward to having you back with our next podcast. Thank you very much.